0: Welcome to the Undisputedly Pauline podcast. I'm Benjamin Naismith, and this is my audio blog. I'm a seminary graduate and also a PhD candidate in mathematics, but this podcast is about my interest in the role of experience in theology and about the Apostle Paul as an exemplar of an experiential Christian faith. In this episode, I talked to my friend Juan in California again. He's starting a new podcast uh, about Jürgen Moltmann, and we had a discussion about Jürgen Moltmann uh, and his theology, focused around a a short piece of writing from Moltmann. Um, The topic turned out to be about the concept of retribution in theology and how it plays such a big role, and I think it plays a harmful role in, in much of Christian theology. And Moltmann points forward in a different direction. Uh, in a way to understand Christianity without leaning on retribution as a fundamental category. So I hope you enjoy our discussion together.
1: Hey Juan, how's it going? Pretty good, Ben. Thanks for getting together once again to do a little bit more discussion.
0: Yeah, so we were going to talk about this article that you sent me, uh, by Jurgen Moltmann called this, uh, The Son of Righteousness. And you sent this to me several years ago, uh, early into when I met you on Twitter. And then you sent it to me again recently, and I reread it. Now, you want to tell us what this article, where it comes
1: from, and why you find it interesting? Sure. So I read this article for the first time maybe five years ago or so. At the time, I was really, really immersed in my Jurgen Molman studies. I was trying to read everything by him. And so this book right here, this chapter rather, that we're going to discuss, it's titled Son of Righteousness, the Gospel About Judgment and the New Creation of All Things. So this is actually chapter thirteen of a book by Molman titled Son of Righteousness Arise. Okay. Which he published, I believe, in twenty ten or twenty twelve, so about ten years ago.
0: Okay. Um, and the topic of this of this uh, chapter is is along the lines of the doctrine of um, the doctrine of the judgment, or something like that, or eschatology, or what do we expect God to do in the long run, or what have people in the Christian faith and in the Jewish faith and in ancient religions. Thought of judgment and God's role in judgment, what the meaning of judgment is, and so on—is that about
1: right? Yeah. So the subtitle for this chapter is "The Gospel About Judgment and the New Creation of All Things," and the reason I sent this article to you—it's pretty short. It's maybe thirteen pages. Um, It's because here, Molman is able to boil down a lot of his eschatology to just less than twenty pages. He actually has a full eschatology that you can read. It's called The Coming of God, which is roughly 400 or 500 pages on this subject. But here, right. in 20 pages, he gives you the essence of that larger volume, which is right. why I like this. Most people will read 20 pages. If you give them a 500-page book on eschatology, it's probably not going to happen.
0: So very briefly, eschatology, that's the, a, a, a word that means like the doctrine of the, la- of the last things or the final things or in a religion, the re- eschatology of the religion is the, is the idea of where does this religion think everything is going and where's it going to end up? Um, so why, why are we interested in eschatology at all? I mean, who could really know?
1: <laughs> right. Well, the reason for this, I mean, if you read the New Testament, the New Testament is a set of documents that is pretty obsessed with the last days, with the Messiah, the Kingdom of God, all the eschatological concepts, and ever since uh, Albert Schweitzer uh, wrote his books about the historical Jesus, uh, there was uh, there was a revival of interest in looking at theology and the New Testament more more generally in terms of eschatology. And that is what Jurgen Molman did to the entirety of his career. He's still alive. He's about 94 now, but uh, he's been at it for 50 years or so. And all of his work is heavily grounded by this concept of eschatology. So, yeah.
0: And I would say that, that right now, as humans, if we look around ourselves, um, we we live on a glo- on a on a planet that's warming up, and so you know it's a good time to think about eschatology, if only to think about what might happen in the next thirty years, <laughs> and to think, um, we we can't really put these things off in in many ways. The the present has an effect on the future, and the future has an effect on the present, um, in some sense or another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the ancient world, people were thinking about the last things as well. Um, maybe it didn't turn out the way that they thought, or maybe they had a longer view, but who knows. So in at the beginning of this essay, it, he opens it up by trying to talk about, um, well, the eschatology in the ancient world. Is that about right? So what would you say from, that you noticed from the first section of this essay?
1: Yeah, well, uh, this is how Molman begins the essay. He says, the idea that the world will end with God's final judgment is not originally a Christian concept and not even a biblical one. Israel took over Babylonian and later Egyptian ideas about justice in its own independent way and reshaped them in the power of its belief in God. So, I mean, that's the thesis, right? This is Molman's big claim. And then he goes on to prove it. Where did these ideas of eschatology come from? Well, for the Christians, we know from the New Testament, but we understand that everything from the New Testament came from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and everything that uh, the Hebrew prophets uh, believe had earlier origins. And here, Molman goes on to claim that there was Babylonian and Egyptian influence in the theology of the hebrew prophets and so that's what we see here
0: yeah and i mean some people may take offense at that but of course like of course there is <laughs> um, you don't live in a world without being influenced by your neighbors it's it's inevitable uh and so it's good to be sober about that and see where these ideas are coming from uh uh-huh. so I, one sentence that caught my eye was the Last sentence of the first paragraph uh, in the first section, where he says, In this cosmological context, righteousness is an activity that brings about justice and that creates justice. It is not a righteousness that merely establishes what is good and evil and requ- requites it accordingly. So, right up front, what I notice here is that Moltmann is saying that in this ancient context, um, righteousness is doing justice not settling all the scores in the world
1: yeah exactly and right here he's uh he's discussing what he calls the cosmological concept of righteousness and justice and at this point we're talking about the uh the mesopotamian concept of the divine righteousness of the sun god right so like you said here the focus of righteousness is in creating justice, bringing about justice, not on punishing or in dealing with evil, right?
0: Yeah, so I've read of course I've read beyond this sentence, and, and, but it, it kind of brings it, brings forward a lot of things he says later uh, and, and I just want to identify here immediately he's saying that uh, righteousness in the ancient world in this context is not seeing to it that a principle of retribution is satisfied. Uh, and the principle of retribution is roughly the idea that uh, for every action there needs to be a, a punishment or a reward, the idea that every deed deserves to be punished or rewarded. and i think that many of us and i think he goes on to say that christians have sometimes been tempted to think that divine righteous god is righteous if god makes sure that everybody is correctly punished or rewarded given all the things that they've done that basically god in the con- in this retribution concept is the god of retribution the one who makes sure that everybody Gets what they had coming to them and that the scores all balance out. It's sort of justice as a set of scales that need to be balanced. Uh, anyway, right up front, he's saying that's not the case in the ancient world. And I think that that is so true uh, for the way forward that Christians really need to question their concept of retribution to realize that it's not the only way to think about righteousness and justice.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And so you talked about the scales of justice, and again, that comes from the idea of the Egyptian idea about judgment. So why don't we go to that section? So here I'll read uh, one highlight. Moman says, the Egyptian idea about judgment is an idea about the next world. It is not related to the cosmic justice of this one. The divine judgment is judgment on the dead a transition from this world to the world beyond. The continuity between this world and the next is constituted through reward and punishment in the, in, in the world beyond for deeds and misdeeds committed here." And he goes on to talk about the Book of the Dead, the famous Book of the Dead, where a lot of this uh, Egyptian eschatology is depicted, right? So the idea is you die and you go to the netherworld and there's a set of scales on one side uh, are all your good deeds i believe right and and the other one are all your bad or evil deeds and if the evil deeds outweigh the good then of course you're gonna have a unpleasant afterlife if your positive deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then you go to the nicer part of the netherworld. And that was their idea. So for the Egyptians, the righteousness of God or the judgment had to do with what happens after you die and how that determines what happens to you once you go to the netherworld.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, And if if that's... What Christianity teaches, he goes on to say that, then in that case, Christ is just replacing Osiris.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah okay. So at the bottom of um, well, I'm on a Kindle, so my pages are not actually pages, but <laughs> towards the bottom of my screen here it says, um, "We find on the one hand the concept of a justice which put things puts things right, which saves and heals." Mm-hmm. And on the other hand a justice which assesses and requites so is justice fixing things healing things or is justice settling the score that's the dilemma that moltman wants to put to us what do you what do we think well i know what i think um but i didn't used to think this i used to think naturally in this framework of justice as settling the score and i think that that's a very primal uh ancient i guess it goes all the way back to ancient egyptian mythology Um, it's a very ancient way to think it's a very stubborn way to approach the world and so many of us are in the grips of it including christians and including christian theologians and teachers sometimes
1: Mm -hmm. yeah definitely
0: he, he, he says uh, on the next paragraph, if you look for a moment at the Christian pictures of the last judgment in the medieval churches, we immediately see how much the Egyptian judgment of the dead has put its stamp on these representation of judgment, according to works and how little the old Testament concepts of the creative justice have found an entry into Christian ideas about judgment. So we haven't talked too positively about that yet, but, uh what he's saying is that Christianity has a heritage in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, of a concept of a justice which actually does good work in the world, and it's neglected, and it has been neglected for large periods of the Christian Church.:
1: Yeah, exactly.: Yeah, uh, I also highlighted something in that section. So this is Molman. That brings us to the question, what is really Christian in our traditional ideas of judgment? Is it not highest time to Christianize notions about the the last judgment and to evangelize their effect on present day life so that we can cry joyfully, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come soon. Yeah, so, I mean, I remember even when I was a child going to Catholic church, right? And I remember the Catholic priest talking about, you know, the return of Christ. And I just remember being filled with dread. Like the return of Christ to me was never a joyful event to anticipate. It was just like, oh no, the judge is coming back. I better, <laughs> Yeah, I'm in trouble. And so when you read the Bible, especially in the Psalms, there's a number of Psalms in which thinking of the righteousness of God, thinking of the coming of God, fills the whole creation with joy. But a lot of times in church history, in the churches today, the conception of justice is equated with retributive justice, and that just entirely kills any joy or joyful expectation of the return of Christ. Cause you're like, Oh man, I'm in trouble. I hope, uh, hope I've been good. Yeah. I know what's going to happen.
0: <laughs> so yeah. So the, just before the next section, I believe he says, unlike human courts where sentences differentiate, In this idea about the divine judgment, which is the retributive approach. There are only two sentences, eternal life or eternal death, heaven or hell. If we then ask in surprise what happens to the goodly visible creation, the earth, God's other creatures, the answer is that everything will burn to ashes. The structure of this world will no longer be required. When the blessed in heaven see God directly without any mediation through other created things, that is the uh anil hiliatio <laughs> the, the annihilation of the world. Only heaven and hell are left. Now this is a very powerful observation. Uh first of all, as humans, we have more than two outcomes of any criminal trial. Like uh, basically walk free or death penalty. Like we don't have innocent or dead. There's more than there's more than two ways for a court case to to, to pan out in terms of um, the sentencing. So will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? <laughs> this in this picture where it's really simple. This is Abraham. Like I think Abraham there's there's a precedent in Genesis where Abraham goes to God and says will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right. Like, I think that's a valuable approach for us as we think about what to expect from God. Like we should ask, will he not do, or will God not do what is right? And this is just not right. This idea of, uh, total reward or total destruction. It's, it's just remarkable. Uh, it doesn't even pass muster in a human court. Uh-huh. And this, yeah. And then the second thing he says is what about the creation? Well, when the whole idea of justice is focused on settling the score and making things balance, it's really about balance in the afterlife, then the, the world as it is in front of us right now all of a sudden ceases to not matter. And you have to wonder if this doesn't affect how Christians have approached the environment in this, since the Industrial Revolution at least.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, so what Bolman's getting at here is that in many places and at many points, there are contradictions in our eschatology. So on the one hand, we say, well, God loves the whole world. God has atoned for the sins of the whole world. But, you know, most of the, most of the world will actually burn and be punished forever. <laughs> so there's just there's a contradiction here. There's a contradiction between God being the creator and then perhaps even destroying the creation, right? In judgment. So, yeah. Um, there's a section here, precisely titled the contradictions, right? He says, in my view, these notions about judgment are extremely hostile to the creation. Then he goes on to say the Christ, With the two-edged sword in his mouth, who exercises retributive justice toward human beings with rewards and punishment is unrecognizable. He has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth, the preacher on the mount, the healer of the sick, the forgiver of sins. This retributive judge cannot be the Christ who was crucified for us and who has risen ahead of us. Well, I gotta
0: stop you right there.
1: He's talking about scripture. That's in
0: Revelation. (laughs) So what are you going to, what do you say to that?
1: (laughs) Right. So, well, as you know, the book of Revelation is a book filled with symbols and it has to be interpreted very carefully. Uh, not only that i think we have to interpret it theologically to some extent so a lot of people have this idea some people from c.s lewis right that you know god is like a a lion right in the movies <laughs> aslan what is this lion name yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: and he's a, he's a good lion but he's a dangerous lion as well and So that is good, but he's also dangerous. He's holy, but he is merciful. So in the Gospels, we get a clear picture of what Jesus was all about. Jesus' idea of righteousness was one that included sinners, welcomed sinners, rehabilitated sinners. It's not a picture of, oh, I just can't stand sinners and I'm going to destroy them, get them away from me. My holiness cannot endure their sight. I think that's what Mormon is saying here. When you look at the Gospels, Jesus was somebody who loved sinners, attracted sinners, welcomed sinners, ate at the table with the sinners, made them part of his ministry, forgave their sins, healed them, restore them, and then send them out to the ministry to reach out to more sinners. But if you take one passage from Revelation, right, and say, oh, wow, you know, Jesus has like a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's coming down from heaven to destroy sinners forever and ever and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a little bit later, we're going to get to that predicament towards the end of the article towards the end well i'll
0: be a bit more well i just want to say a bit more directly that um, if you have to choose between jesus friend of sinners and jesus destroyer of sinners Mm
1: -hmm. choose
0: jesus the friend of sinners just get over it um, and you do have to choose frankly so (laughs) because we've got both in (laughs) our bible so So just go with it. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Anyone who tells you otherwise, whether they be an angel of light, let them Mm -hmm. be anathema. Mm.
1: Yeah, exactly. But the the problem is that a lot of churches will try to say, well, can't he just be the friendly destroyer (laughs) of (laughs) sinners? That is literally what happens. He is just a friendly destroyer of sinners on the last day. Right now, we're living in a time of his mercy. But when he returns, he's going to show oh, us, Mr. you nice know. Guy. Yeah, exactly. So that's the problem that we're tackling here. And uh, let me read a little bit more. Mulman says, the picture of the God who judges human beings in wrath has been the cause of much spiritual and psychological damage. It has poisoned the idea of God instead of leading to trust in him. Then he goes on to say, so the picture of the last judgment, as traditionally depicted, is nothing other than the final endorsement of human free will. So he he quotes the Church of England on a document from 1995. Nevertheless, it is our conviction that the reality of hell and indeed of heaven is the ultimate affirmation of the reality Of human freedom, said the Doctrine Commission of the Church of England in 1995. to shift the blame. (laughs) Right. Moldman comments God here is only the executor or accomplice of the person's own decision. Belief in the freedom of the human will replaces belief in God. Can you talk a a little bit about what's going on here? What, What is the Church of England? And many other churches doing here and why is moment against it can you can you answer that yeah
0: okay so i i don't remember the title but recently david bentley hart has written some articles about mm. hell and the doctrine of hell mm-hmm. and how it is psychologically untenable mm. and it and if you if you just look in the pews of any church you're going to find people who who were basically damaged by dwelling on hell and meditating on hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's almost unspeakable when you think about the doctrine of hell, it's almost unspeakable. Uh, and so frankly, Christian leaders stop speaking about it. Um, but they don't always have the courage to say we were wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they find a way, to make it all fit and this is why this is a kind of this is something that bothers me and i'll call it like the problem of harmonization mm. this is when you have an approach to scripture or an approach to tradition or an approach to authority where you have to make it work somehow you're not interested in the evidence you're not interested in the character of god Necessarily, or at least it doesn't have the kind of final authority that it needs to really do the work in theology. Um, but you have to make it fit. So you read about Jesus, the friend of sinners, in the Book of Matthew. You read about Jesus, the destroyer of sinners, in the Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. You also believe in the doctor doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, which can mean lots of things. But go further, you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. So you have to, So you're committed to this idea that Jesus is the friendly destroyer of sinners and uh, that's harmonization what really needs to go is your doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture you need to have the moral courage to choose between the author of matthew and the author of revelation you need to be able to follow the spirit where it leads um, and the spirit that leads you to jesus the destroyer is not the spirit of jesus and and so i don't know um uh, i'm not going to point any particular fingers but but I think that in theology, if we want to follow the spirit of Jesus, it's going to flip a few tables. And uh, it doesn't seem like the Church of England has flipped their tables here. Uh, they found a way to make it work, to keep the traditional ideas in place. Uh, but there's a sense that they're concerned about the character of God because they, they can't stomach the idea that God would be directly responsible for uh, s- destroying. hmm god's enemies uh, and so they say god's enemies destroyed themselves now that shows an awareness that there's a problem uh, and it's an attempt at a solution but i'll leave it to other people to to work out whether it's a good enough solution or whether it's just a band-aid for the for the
1: moment mm-hmm. right exactly so of course moman is not a fan of this approach.
0: No, and that's what makes theologians like Maltman so great. Nobody wants to listen to a balanced theologian. If you want to find a theologian to learn something, you got to find one that just pushes all the way in a direction (laughs) because that makes them the most interesting and they show you like what can be done if you just have a bit of courage. uh, Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. Right. Okay, let's move on to the next section. In this next section, Moman begins to uh, speak positively of what he believes the righteousness of God and of Christ is about and what the aim of said righteousness and justice is. Uh, So he makes this comment. He says, the expectation of the divine judgment, which would bring about justice, was originally the hope of the victims of injustice and violence. This right here reminds me of this other book that I read by Mo where he talks about how in the New Testament, you read the New Testament, and Christians are excited, right? Christians are excited about the return of Christ. They're, they're praying for it to come. But skip forward 300 years, then we have the church and the empire merging into one, basically. And then he analyzes how the liturgy changed. 350 years later, the Christians were not praying for Christ to return, but they were praying for Christ not to return. (laughs) Yes. Because they were not afraid of Christ's coming judgment. Right. Something had changed. Wow. Something had changed, and he cites evidence of prayers where they will pray for Christ to delay his coming not for him to come soon and so here Molman talks about how very quickly the the understanding of the restorative justice of god in the new testament was quickly changed into retributive judgment so let me read a little bit more here so this is what Molman suggests God's supreme justice will create justice for the victims of wickedness, will raise them up out of the dust, will heal the wounded lives, and put to rights the lives that have been destroyed. The victims wait for God's creative justice, which will bring them liberty, health, and new life. They are waiting not for a judgment based on works, for a judgment based on the suffering of the sufferers it was only later and under foreign influences that in the biblical writings this saving deliverer of victims came to be turned into a universal criminal judge who judges according to good and evil and no longer inquires about the victims. So again, talking about the transformation of how originally there was this idea of the judgment of God bringing justice for the victims. And it was transformed into this judgment in which sinners are punished and it no longer inquires about the victims and their suffering. Because under this new idea of judgment, everybody is a sinner anyway. So really, Mm -hmm. there are no victims. The only victim is God, who has been sinned against. And so I guess he's the only one that gets justice, and everybody else gets punished, right? Mm -hmm. That's the idea. And, of course, Jesus steps in and somehow changes the equation in our favor. But, I mean, if if it were not for Jesus... We are led to believe that the righteousness of God would just annihilate all sinners, and God alone would would uh, be glorified.
0: Well, that keeps things simple. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me say something about about imprecatory scriptures.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, I like to think of the Psalms, for instance, as a time capsule of religious experience, and and I think that we need to do justice to the idea of when the Psalms say something really s- severe, like may God destroy my enemies or God is against my enemies. Um, I, I hate those who oppress me and God does too. Well, the Psalms express those kinds of sentiments. That's coming from somewhere. And I think that's coming from the experience of people who are under the boot. They're coming from people who are exiles from Israel living in Babylon for instance. Uh And you can't go to someone like that and say, you know, cheer up. God is a God of love. Uh, You shouldn't be so angry. Uh, The Psalms are as a time capsule of religious experience capture the fact that when you live under the boot, you will get angry and you're going to involve God in your anger. Okay, so there's that. But that doesn't give the final word on the character of god and god's approach to the world and god's approach to the solutions about the world so so when somebody who is oppressed in ancient babylon calls for the destruction of their enemies there and that ends up in the psalms like we have material that's entering the religious tradition of christianity and judaism and and others uh, that could be used to build the doctrine of retribution but we have to carefully sort that material and decide whether that's a good idea. Do we want to build a doctrine of retribution from that? Or is the truth about what God can actually do and will actually do even better than somebody in that position could imagine, right? So it's hard to imagine, God, if you're, if you're suffering at the hands of other people, it's hard to imagine uh, a redemption or a salvation an end to your suffering Mm -hmm. and maybe the first thing that pops into mind is the end to my suffering is the destruction of the one who hurts me Mm -hmm. but God can do better than that not only can God bring an end to that suffering and make it right but God can also heal the one who was doing the wrong in the first place and it's not the burden of those who are suffering to envision that redemption of their oppressor necessarily um, but if we're building a religion which we kind of all are all the time we can't just sort of coast on the tradition we have to build something for now um we got to pick and choose uh we can't just we can't just give free rein to this destruction of your enemies vibe in the scripture <laughs> we can't let it dominate our thinking uh-huh. even though it's there and even though it's not going away uh-huh. And so, yeah, this is what I noticed in Moltmann. Uh, he talks about a victim oriented approach to salvation and the work of God. And, and in this paragraph that you've been reading and so on, he talks about how often Christian concepts of God's work have been God helps the sinner to survive the wrath of God. Uh, right. And there's very little to say about how God helps those who have been harmed to heal and and move on and, and and flourish especially in fellowship with the people who harmed them uh this is a very this is like the hardest problem in the in the human experience is how to make friends out of enemies mm-hmm. and that's that's the miracle of the spirit of god at work in the world when it
1: happens um, Well, earlier you referenced uh, our good friend, uh, David Bentley Hart. I'm looking at that volume. It's called That All Shall Be Saved. So it's this little book where he basically writes about the same things, but more from a philosophical uh, argumentation point of view, as well as scriptural. And he argues the same thing, right? But uh, here, just to support what you just said, Molman says, The divine justice which Christ will bring about for all human beings and for all things will not be the justice that establishes what is good and what is evil, nor will it be the the retributive justice which rewards the good and punishes the wicked. It will be God's creative justice which brings justice for the victims and puts the perpetrators right. The victims do not have to remain victims to all eternity, and the perpetrators do not have to remain perpetrators forever. Yeah, so absolutely, absolutely. And uh, another thing that uh, I realized reading another one of his books is that even this bifurcation into okay, so here are the perpetrators and here are the victims. Even that is simplistic because there are people who are clearly both. And we see this, unfortunately, here on earth, that oftentimes, unfortunately, children, for example, who suffer terribly at the hands of abusers, go on to become abusers themselves. It's a horrible thing, but it does happen. And so you have people who were victimized and then later become perpetrators themselves. So even this bifurcation, it's a little bit simplistic. And I appreciate the fact that uh, Molmont takes a strong stand here on how the righteousness of God, the justice of God has to reach everyone. Yeah, so there's,
0: there's a concept that I picked up uh, a few years ago from an author named Nicholas Waltersdorf and he was criticizing retributive justice. And it was actually one of the first times that a a chink in the logic of retributive justice occurred to me was reading him and, um, he described an alternative form of justice, which he called, um, reprobative justice. And the idea is the question is, what is the purpose of punishment in terms of crime and punishment? What is the purpose? There's a bunch of purposes. Some, one purpose could be, um, could be to retaliate to say if you hurt me i will hurt you why well because if you hurt me i'll hurt you that's why <laughs> that's retribution and i think that's an unchristian and an unholy and horrible idea that's basically uh, common sense to lots of christians unfortunately um, another idea is that you might punish to prevent other people or as a warning to other people so that they don't so that they see the punishment and think well i better not do that myself I mean, we have to make these decisions. We live in a society. There's uh, people, people are punished by our society and we have to have reasons for it. Um, So putting those two reasons aside, uh, there's this idea of reprobative justice, that the purpose of a punishment is to show the one who did wrong that what they did was wrong, for them to see essentially what the victim sees, right? So when, if I harm you, it's gonna look differently to me than it looks to you. For you, it'll be raw and real, uh, but for me, I might not even notice. I could say something uh, that very hurtful to you without even knowing that it hurt you. and uh, and that's that's a problem, right? So the perspective of the victim and the perspective of the person who does the harm are very different and the and one of the purposes of taking special action which we sometimes call punishment is so that the person who did the thing can see what the victim sees, not to get even with them, but just so that there can be an understanding of what happened. And I think that is a concept that I haven't seen really explored in great detail in theology, but I'd like to see better understood that, um, that could totally do everything that Christians lean on retribution for. And the beautiful thing about it is that once the person who's done the harm sees what they've done, understands what they've done, regrets what they've done, it's over. There's no need to continue with their punishment or whatever corrective measures are, are, are being had. There's no sense that we have to continue this punishment just because we haven't balanced the scales yet. There's a opportunity for redemption, and that is for the one who did the harm to see the person that they harmed as befitting mm-hmm. as as a person with dignity and as a person who did not deserve to have that done to them. Uh, so, I get I got a little sense of that in this essay where he talks about judgment is something where it's not just the it's not just the, the sinner who stands before God alone. It's the sinner who stands before God beside the people that they've harmed Mm -hmm. together and that God's justice will heal and deal with both together. And, and, and I don't know, I think that that, I think there's some truth to that. That's what we really want deep down when we want justice is we want to be seen and heard and understood. Um, It doesn't do me any good that anyone who's harmed me, suffers exactly what i've suffered Mm -hmm. i don't i get no comfort out of the scales being balanced but it it means a lot to me when they know what it felt like to be me when they did what they did Mm -hmm.
1: yeah definitely yeah absolutely
0: I think he talks about this under dimensions of justice or dimensions mm-hmm. of judgment towards the bottom. The judgment of the victims and the perpetrators is always a social judgment, he writes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We do not stand before the judge just on our own and dependent on ourselves, as we do here in criminal courts or in the nighttime torments of conscience, which is what the Reformation is all about. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then, other judgment, the perpetrators stand together with their victims. Cain and Abel, Babylon with Israel. Mm-hmm. The violent with the helpless, the murderers with the murder, the per- mm-hmm. persecutors with the martyrs. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh, let me see. Here. Here, uh, he starts uh, talking about what do we do? There's so many passages in the Bible, right? Some of them, are clearly retributive, others are not, and they're unreconciled. So he makes this comment, which I highlighted. He says, when ideas about punishment are used in the New Testament, we can can interpret them in the light of the new creation of all things, which the judgment is designed to serve. Then he explains, Judgment has not just a negative meaning, but above all, a positive one. That is to say, it will not merely destroy, but will above all save. It is the annihilating no to all the powers that are contrary to God and the dissolution of the world of evil, but it is the saving and fulfilling yes of creation. Behold, I make all things new so the idea here is that judgment is not ultimate but penultimate it's the prerequisite so that we can have the new creation in which god dwells in all right so he reminds us that judgment has above all a positive function which is namely to to lay the groundwork necessary so that the vision of Revelation 21 can be fulfilled in which God is with humanity. There are no more tears. There is no more suffering. And there is joy. So, yeah.
0: Uh, One of my, that author I mentioned, his name is Nicholas Wolterstorff. His definition of justice, and he spends a whole book defining it, is roughly this. It's, um, justice is seeing to it that someone or something is treated as befits its worth. Uh, it's not about getting even. And the way I tried to explain this to people is if I write a movie review, I watch a movie and I write a movie review, did I do justice to that movie? I don't know, it depends if I wrote a good review. Like if I wrote a review that reflected the value of that film, <laughs> I don't get even with a film, like mm-hmm. writing a review. <laughs> we use this concept of do justice mm. just off offhand in English. And it, it doesn't usually mean getting even, but somehow getting even is what many people think justice means. Uh, and it's crazy. And so it's so great to see Moltman um seeing beyond this seeing so clearly beyond it that justice is when we do is when we treat something that befits its worth and that includes creation creation is a wonderful gift uh if only because it's so rare like we live on this uh little planet of ours and we're wondering if there's other planets out there that are like it well maybe there are but we're never going to get there they're so far away <laughs> uh and so depending on how you look at it, things are valuable just because they're hard to find. Like we're living on something that's very hard to find. And, and, and it needs to be treated as befits its worth. We need to treat this earth for what it's worth. It's worth so much to us. And, and this idea of justice as getting even has, has caused Christians to totally dismiss the value of the earth, to totally dismiss the value of each other, to continue punishing people long after the purpose of punishment, which would be to help them understand what was wrong in the first place Mm -hmm. where we've gone past that. Now we're just hardening them where there's a prison industrial complex in many countries, not to be named here. (laughs) It's, Mm -hmm. there's so much horrible thing, so many horrible things built upon the Christian approach to justice as retribution. We've got a lot to be ashamed of
1: here. Yes, definitely. Oh, Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you for that comment. Uh, Well, the next comment I would like to highlight here is one that uh, is in this section entitled Partisanship for the Victims of Injustice and Violence. So Molman says, Christian universalism is no hindrance to partisanship for the victims of injustice and violence, but promotes it. In a divided and hostile world, the universalism of God's mercy with all can only be vouched for by the way of the familiar referential option for the poor. God himself acts in history without bias in favor of the victims so that through them he can save the perpetrators too. This is borne out by Mary and Jesus and Paul. In the Magnificat, Mary sings, he puts down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sends away empty. Jesus calls the weary and heavy laden to himself, accepts sinners and lets the Pharisees go empty away. For Paul, the community of Christians is itself a witness to this one-sided activity of God on behalf of all human beings. Of God. And that is why we sing, Son of righteousness arise, triumph over the shades of night. Okay, so I like this section because here uh, I think Molman understands that even if we say yes to Christian universalism, yes to universal salvation, reconciliation for all, and whatnot, the new creation. Uh, He talks about how historically God has always been in favor of the poor, in favor of those suffering, and how the way God functions is always with a bias for those in most need. And that's how he works. Yes, we can say that eventually all will be healed, all will be saved and reconciled. But God always begins is saving activity by looking to the least of these so I like how he put those two things together here
0: yeah and so let me say two things um, first about universalism so Moulton is a universalist so he believes that somehow God will redeem all people uh, we mentioned the Church of England earlier like they they're not universalists so they believe that that God will not save some people but due to no fault of God basically Uh, And I think it would be best to say perhaps more modestly that we don't know yet whether God will succeed in saving all people. Uh, And if we do know, I would like to see the evidence. Uh, But I think that I respect moment's approach and, and the arguments that he makes. Um, But as, as other theologians say, in a way history isn't over and, uh, and it's okay to wait for God to do the great things before, before giving God credit for them. <laughs> so we can make an argument from the character of God, and I think that that can be very uh, powerful. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what's happening here. Um, yeah, but on the other hand, human experience is filled with the fact that so often the oppressor does not turn from their ways um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. uh and it's so discouraging and so so anyway i just want to say that uh, i think that if i were uh, to put myself somewhere i would go with a hopeful universalism mm-hmm. is that i hope and uh, that god can pull this off uh, but i don't know if we have the evidence uh that he can that god can or that god will anyway I really don't know, I don't know. So I'm hopeful, Uh, but not overconfident. Yeah, the second thing I wanted to say is that this idea of a preferential option for the poor goes back to what I was saying earlier, is that the world looks differently from the perspective of the rich and the poor. To the rich, the world looks pretty nice, Uh, looks pretty fair, looks like if you work hard, you get ahead. Uh, To the poor, none of those things seem true. Mm -hmm. hard work goes unrewarded things don't seem very fair things don't seem very nice so when you ask well how does god see the world what you're really asking is who's right the rich or the poor Uh, and and in in many ways it's the poor who are right that's why you have to listen uh, to those who feel the injustice to even find the injustice in the first place On the other hand, we don't want to let the imprecatory psalms take the driver's seat on our doctrine of God and the character of God, because that can lead to a dark place as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first started reading Molman, he was the first universalist theologian that was widely known and respected by a lot of people. Of course, a lot of people don't like him. I like <laughs> <But> him. <laughs> he's pretty famous. It's a big name. He's reformed. I was pretty excited to finally have found someone that shared my convictions when it comes to universal salvation. So I was pretty excited. At this point, I mean, it's, it's up to God, like you said, and I just trust God. I'm not really worried about it. <laughs> But I do want to, I do want for us to read maybe at the very end of the document, because I think, in my opinion, this is probably the most important part of the essay, uh, that maybe the last paragraph. Do you mind reading the last paragraph on the entire essay?
0: Yeah, it says, uh, this outline of a new version of the expectation of the last judgment. I have only entered into the biblical tradition of Paul and the deutero epistles, Ephesians and Colossians. I recognize that Matthew, the synoptic Little Apocalypse, he's talking about uh, Matthew 24, 25, and Mark 13, uh, and the Book of Revelation, these talk about an anthropocentric dualism rather than about a theocentric universalism. So Moltman is saying, so you may be listening to this podcast here, and you may say, aha, but I know where in the Bible it disagrees with you. And Moltman says, all right, well, let's talk about that. <laughs> because it's not so simple as just finding Bible passages and clipping them together. Mm -hmm. So what does he say? Moulton says, for me, the casting vote was given by the Old Testament concept of divine justice for victims and the all-rectifying judgment of God. The different biblical traditions about judgment cannot be harmonized. Uh Uh-oh, a decision has to be made on the foundation of theological arguments. End
1: quote. Well, there it is. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) I mean, you can still disagree with Mormon if you want, but I think that if you look deeply and read widely, you're going to have to the same conclusion. The different biblical traditions about judgment cannot be harmonized. A decision has to be made on the foundation of theological arguments not yes, just figuring yes. out who has the most verses yeah i have 375 verses how many do you have like three right? <laughs> half i don't know half a verse at <laughs> the universalist would probably say well i have 20 but oh these are very powerful yeah
0: <laughs> yeah so it goes back to the doctrine of scripture and like how do we even know things about theology in the first place um uh, good grief like this is a huge question. Uh, and it cannot be reduced to, well, I just believe what the Bible says. Um, because the Bible is, let's call it, a treasure trove of religious experience and interpretation. And it is not harmonized. Uh, it's not harmonized. And whenever you harmonize it, you erase it. Because you you make two things that are different. Uh, the same, which is the same as erasing both of them at once. Or what really happens is that you reveal your tendencies. So if you tend to prefer the idea that God loves sinners, you're gonna gravitate towards those passages. If you prefer the idea that God hates sinners, usually other people, you'll gravitate towards those passages. Um, It happens. Uh, and, And when that happens, what's really going on is that scripture is reading you. You're not reading scripture. It's reading you. It's asking, so who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say God is? Is Jesus the friend of sinners or is Jesus the destroyer of sinners? And you're not allowed to like pick up your Bible and find a passage to prove your point. Like, do you know which one it is? (laughs) That's what happens when you encounter the many voices in scripture is they ask you, who do you say I am? Jesus asks us through them, who do you say that I am? And, uh, and we have choices, we have choices to make. Um, and those choices say a lot about who we are and our encounter or lack of encounter with the spirit of Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm. Great, excellent.
0: I guess one last thing I'd like to bring up, it's not in the essay, is the connection to the doctrine of atonement. Mm -hmm. Which he doesn't really talk about too much um, here in this context, but Mm -hmm. for many Christians, the doctrine of retribution is so precious because they think it belongs to the gospel. What say you, Juan? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, exactly. What is the gospel? They will say, well, you know, Jesus died for me to save me, and you know, he basically is saving us from God in a lot of traditional understandings, right? Like, Jesus literally saves us yes, for God, but also from God. Right. And that's yeah. where the problem is. Well,
0: it's like, okay, before we even talk about the gospel, you need to agree to the framework of retribution. That's what, that's what the way it's preached in many churches. And Here's the thing is that the framework of retribution just comes so naturally to all of us. If you hit me, I'm going to want to hit you back. Um, I think deep down the reason I would want to do that is because I want you to know what it feels like to be me. Right? But it's very, it's a very quick switch to me wanting to get even and just thinking getting even is the thing of value. And, uh, but I think that's a false, I think that's a trap. It's so deeply ingrained in human nature. And it's, it's totally unsuitable as a preamble to the gospel. You should not first adopt the doctrine of retribution in order to receive the gospel in the context of retribution. The gospel should free you from the doctrine of retribution to realize that God isn't against you, but God is for you. God isn't even against your enemies. God's for your enemies as well in a way that respects the complexities of human
1: suffering and harm done to one another. Well, it sounds like we found the topic for our next talk atonement. Okay. <laughs> great, excellent. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh talking once again about an uh, important piece of theological writing here with Molman. And uh, we should do this again at some point, definitely. All the best, thanks, thanks a lot, Ben.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and found something encouraging or challenging to dwell on. I'd love to hear back from you. Please leave me an audio message. Just go to the podcast website, anchor.fm slash ben nasmith, and click message. I might even include your voice in a future episode. Until then, let's imitate Paul as he imitates Christ.